Amen. You guys may be seated. Well, as I said earlier, my name is Walter. I'm one of the pastors here at Holmes Avenue. And again, I want to thank you guys for joining us. Uh, Today, we're going to be continuing our series in Leviticus. Uh, We're going to be in Leviticus chapter 16 today. The title of our sermon is God's Atoning Work. I think it's a beautiful picture of God's providence that we are here in Leviticus chapter 16 looking at the Day of Atonement the week after Easter. Um, You can say that uh, Brian and I planned it that way. We did not. God is greater than us. And by God's glory, we are here. I also am a little bit upset at Barbara this morning because she pretty much gave away my entire sermon this morning. And I do appreciate you stealing my thunder. I don't know how, much, how closely you guys pay attention to those things, but Barbara did an incredible job this morning. Thank you, Barbara, Debbie, and worship team for leading us in worship. So today we're going to be looking at Leviticus chapter 16, God's atoning work, and we're looking at the Day of Atonement. I do need to just make an aside and make sure that you are aware that uh, we do typically take of our tithes and offerings during this time in a normal uh, pre- and post-COVID era. Uh, If you would like to give, you're able to give as you exit with our ushers, Uh, but also you're able to give online at homesavenue.com forward slash give. Now, as we continue, we need to focus in on Leviticus chapter 16 here, the Day of Atonement. Uh, Chapter 16 is truly the hinge chapter of the entire book of Leviticus. As we look at the book, uh, chapters 1 through 15 are really concerned about worship through sacrifice and purity. You've probably seen some of that over the last few months as we've been in Leviticus. You've seen over and over, this is what we do, this is how we worship, here's how we maintain purity and these holy standards. Then we hit 16 and the book begins to transition after this. You see, verses uh, chapters 17 through 27, these begin to describe the characteristics of holy living by the covenant community. That is, the second half of the book is saying, here's how you worship, now is how you live. Now, I think that's incredibly important for us, but 16 is the bridge between both of these areas for both the Hebrew people and us. You see, it is only by this atoning work of Jesus, as we see ultimately in the scriptures, that we can both live a life that is pure and holy and live a life of worship. That that, without that atoning work, we can do neither. And so getting to this portion of the book, chapter 16, is perhaps the most important chapter throughout the book of Leviticus. That without this atoning work of ultimately Jesus... We have no ability to worship God. We have no ability to go into his presence. We have no ability to live as he's commanded us to. Now, as I've said, this chapter is dealing with the Day of Atonement. Uh, Barbara mentioned this, but this is Yom Kippur, the Jewish holiday that you're perhaps familiar with. And maybe it's a little bit simplistic to say this, but as I study this, one of the things I recognize is that this chapter, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, is essentially the Old Testament's version of Good Friday. We're coming off of Easter. You guys were perhaps at or watched our Good Friday service. And as we have a Good Friday service on this side of the New Testament, we're celebrating the good news of the cross right? That though that Jesus had to go and take our place upon the cross and die a death that we deserved, it is a good Friday because ultimately Jesus, God, won. Through that sacrifice on the cross, through his death, burial, and resurrection, we, you and I, are able to have life in Jesus. We are able to find forgiveness of our sins. We're able to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. And when we pass from this earth, we then enter into the new heavens, the new earth. That is, we enter into heaven. We gather around the throne to worship with God for all eternity. Now, as we wrestle with that, this is the Old Testament's version of Good Friday. This day of atonement, as we've gotten to this section of Leviticus, this is God explaining to his people, this is how I'm going to make all things right. This is how I'm going to take this sinful, broken world that sin is corrupting anything and everything, and this is how I'm going to make things the way they're supposed to be. Now, as we get into this, uh, we in the book of Leviticus are going through large chunks of Scripture, so we're not asking you to stand and read the text with us. We're going to go ahead and jump into the text, and I'll read a few bits at a time to navigate through it. But we'll jump in and begin with verse 1. And your first point, just as it'll pop up on the screen for you guys, I want you to be aware of this. We recognize that God's presence is holy. 
God's presence is holy. Look with me at verse 1 as we read. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarments on his body and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. So as we enter into this chapter, we have God giving some instructions to the people of Israel. Specifically, he's talking to Moses and he's providing some instructions for Aaron, the high priest. Now, as we see this, you're probably like I was when I first looked at this. And he tells us that uh, he's speaking to him after the death of the two sons of Aaron. Just to refresh your memory, uh, Aaron's two sons are Nadab and Abihu. Uh, We encounter them uh, throughout the book of Leviticus, but specifically we see them in chapter 10. In chapter 10, we see them make a burnt offering that's contrary to God's commands. He has said, this is how you're to make an offering, right? I want you to do this in this way. And we don't know what they did. They just did something that was not in line with what God had set. And in that, in chapter 10, we see that God is displeased with that and flames leap down from the sky to burn them to death before the Lord in the Holy of Holies. And so here we have this moment of Moses hearing from God and we see him going, hey, there's some things you need to do differently here. Pay attention. He says in verse 2, tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil. He's giving some warnings here in verse 2, and I can assure you that Aaron's paying attention at this point. You see, what he's telling us, he's giving specific commands not to casually step into the presence of God in the holy place. You see, they're establishing some things that Aaron and all the future high priests are going to do to enter into God's presence. We'll see later on in verse 13 that he repeats this warning again. He's making it very clear to Aaron and to the Levitical group that, hey, there are certain things you're going to need to do to enter into God's presence. There's actually a legend, a Hebrew legend we see. Uh, We don't find this in the Bible or we don't actually see this in Jewish interpretation. But there's a Hebrew legend that from this day forward, when Aaron would enter into the Holy of Holies, this holy place that God's referring to, he would enter into the Holy of Holies with a rope tied around his waist. And there would be priests standing on the outside of the Holy of Holies with this rope that they're holding in their hands. And they would be waiting to hear, is God going to be displeased with what Aaron does in here? Has he not made the appropriate offerings? Is he not doing it in the right way? Is he going to strike Aaron down just as he did his sons? That They took this idea of going into God's presence very seriously. They recognized the reality that as you're entering into this place, this holy of holies, this place where God's presence, his holy presence dwells, We don't do so lightly. That they would wait and they would listen. Do we no longer hear the bells jingling? Because if they stop jingling, we need to start pulling on this rope. Now, as we hear this, it sounds like an amusing story. uh, Something that you think that a group of pastors would make up because it's amusing. But what does this section of scripture have to do with you and I? Right? As we look at this, we recognize that God's presence is indeed holy. What does it have to do for you and I? How do we live in this New Testament time, in this presence of God, knowing that He is holy? Well, I think this illustrates a a truth for us, and one that I want to be very careful to define for us. You see, I think that this illustrates for us that we are not to approach God in any way that suits us at that time. We're not to approach God in just any old way. You see, we recognize that we submit to God and what he says about how we approach him. Now, this is not to say that there are certain clothes that we need to wear. This is not to say that necessarily there are certain things that we have to do in terms of this ritualistic, legalistic format. I must do A, B, and C to enter into the presence of the Lord. 
But what this does show us is that we must be concerned about the reality that when we enter into the presence of God, that is, we gather with the body, when we go to him in prayer, when we're beseeching him, that we're encountering a holy God. C.S. Lewis once remarked, as we're looking at the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, one of the children in the story is about to meet Aslan, the Grand Lion. And as this child is speaking to the otters and asking about Aslan, they're saying, is, is he good? Is he, is he fierce? Is he ferocious? Should we be worried? And the response they receive is, worried? Of course you should be worried. He's a lion, but he's good. You see, what we recognize, what C.S. Lewis was articulating for us, is that as we enter into God's presence, we are going into the presence of a holy, righteous God. When we talk about holy, we're talking about a, a perfection. There is no sin. There is no unrighteousness. There is nothing about him and his presence that is equivalent to us. And we have to recognize that we don't casually walk into the den of a lion when he's hungry. We don't casually walk into the presence of a ferocious creature. We do so with fear and awe and trepidation. My wife was in Thailand a few years ago to visit her sister who was doing some mission work there. And one of the things they got to do was to ride elephants during that time. You've seen pictures of elephants. Maybe you've seen them in real life. I've not been fortunate enough to do that other than the zoo. And elephants are huge creatures. They're ferocious. And they have a very series of stipulations of things you must do to go into the presence before you get on this elephant. What I want you to hear, what I'm trying to illustrate for you, is that God is like that creature. We don't casually walk into the presence of a holy, righteous God. The truth is that he's a sovereign Lord. He's not our golf buddy. And that requires a different set of actions from us. Now, as you hear this, you may think, well, Walter, this sounds a little bit strange, right? This almost sounds in, in contrast or in disagreement with what we see in the life of Jesus, right? As we look at the New Testament, we see Jesus described as the one who came to seek and save the lost. We see him described as the one who is the friend of sinners. We see him described as one who mingled with those who were broken. Uh, we see that this, this Jesus, this God incarnate, comes to this earth and walks with the broken, sinful people. We even describe him as we talk about our relationship with God in these intimate, familiar tones, and the only answer I can give you as we look at Scripture is that we have to compare it to, essentially for us, our modern-day equivalent of a king is the president of the United States. Now, regardless of what you think of any president that's been in office in the last 30 years, whatever it is, right? If you were to encounter the president of the United States, you're not going to go in using their first name, hey, Joe, hey, Donald, hey, Barack, how are things, right? You're not going to go in, let's get a high five, man, how are you? None of us are going to do that. Regardless of what you think, you're going to respect their position of authority and you're going to go, well, it's nice to meet you, Mr. President. That you're going to offer a hand, a formal handshake. That when we come into that moment, what you're going to see is the one who is in authority is going to dictate whether this is going to be a formal or informal encounter. That if I'm meeting with the president and he goes, Walter, it's nice to meet you. Give me a high five. Well, now I have permission. We are now informal, right? I can now interact with him with an informal, intimate way. In the same vein, that is how God approaches us. That he is a holy, righteous king that is above you and I. That he is the God of the universe who set the stars in the sky, who set the boundaries of the sea and the land. That he is beyond you and I. He is more powerful than we could ever fathom. And when we approach this God, we have freedom, we have the ability to be intimate and familiar, yet that also requires us to be respectful, humble, and truly in awe that the God of the universe who created everything we see through the stars and skies would love you and I. The God of the universe who would want to intimately know you and I. Psalm 104 reads, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. You see, we don't come into the presence of God with demands or opinions 
or things that we believe he needs to do. No, we come into the presence of God by giving him praise and bowing our hearts in reverence and submission to him. You see, much like the things we've been looking at through the book of Leviticus, we're talking about a heart posture. We're talking about one that says, you are king, you are God, and I am not, and I will submit to you willingly. As we look at the scriptures here, we recognize that we cannot casually stroll into the presence of God. That if indeed God is holy, this requires us to approach him with a humble, contrite heart. This requires us to confess and repent of our sins. This requires us to come in being willing to look at God and saying, if you are king, you can have your way with me. I think that tends to fly into the face of how we approach our relationship with God, though. I think that you and I tend to behave as if God is our golf buddy. He's there to hang out and listen to us. He's going to do us a few favors sometimes because we're going to pray to him. And things are good, right? We're going you know, to pay for the, the, the course fees and such every other time. We're all good. When the truth is that though we have that type of relationship with him at times, he's still a holy lion who's walking amongst his people apart and separate from us. He's a unique being unlike any other. And so, as we look at this, we recognize that God's presence is holy. There are certain things that we must do because you and I are imperfect, sinful people to come into the presence of the Lord. If I might give you a challenge for the next few weeks just to see what behaviors we have. When we come into the gathering on Sundays, what you and I tend to do is what? Greet one another, fellowship, Enjoy the company, and that is a beautiful thing. I want to be very clear. That is a good thing that we love one another. Yet, I've seen in many churches, uh, some around the world in particular, where when the, the believers gather together, those that come in to worship the Lord, the first thing they're doing is not to say hello to their neighbor. They're coming in to say hello to their father. They're coming in saying that I recognize that I'm a sinful person entering into the presence of God. And first, I need to stand before him before I stand before my neighbor. I would challenge you over the next few weeks as we enter into the presence of God. Would you perhaps be willing as you enter into this sanctuary, this worship center, would you step in and rather than immediately go greet your friends and your family, would you merely sit and go into the presence of the Lord in prayer? Would you merely sit and listen for God to speak to you for a few minutes? Would you merely recognize that you're coming before a holy God, that you're about to sing praises and listen to the scriptures to his glory and honor and simply meditate on his majesty? And then, greet one another, fellowship with one another. Rejoice that you've gathered together with the called out ones, the saints, those who are in exile with you. And rejoice that you serve a sovereign king. Over the next few weeks, I would challenge you simply to come in and meditate on his majesty. Now, we recognize that God's presence is holy. That requires us to do certain things. And in the next few verses, we're going to see precisely what the people of Israel must do to prepare to come into God's presence. You see, in the next section of Scripture, we're going to see that God's atonement, this atoning work that he provides, is for our sin. God's atonement is for sin. Now, as we jump into verse 6, I need to give you some uh, updates on what's happening here. You'll see 6 through 10, he talks through just the overall ritual of the Day of Atonement. Verses 11 through 29, this is going to be an in-depth view of what's happening there. So 6 through 10 is like a 30,000-foot view. And then the rest of the verses are looking down closely at each of these details. 
So as we read this, keep that in mind. If some things sound like they're repeating, that's because they are, because Moses is ensuring that you and I as readers are hearing and seeing this in multiple levels. We're getting the big picture view that God is doing an atoning work for his people, but we're also getting a view of the nitty gritty details. That is the things that actually take place within the atonement. There's importance there. Let's look at verse six. Verse six reads, Aaron should offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall make, take the two goats and set them before the tent at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for Azazel. And the Lord Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it might be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. So now we're getting from the 30,000 foot view down into the nitty gritty here in verse 11. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself, and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of sweet incense, beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil, and put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that he does not die." And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Verse 15. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus, he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanliness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all of their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel." Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the wool and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his fingers seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanliness of the people of Israel. Verse 20. And when he has made an end of the atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat And Aaron shall lay his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. Don't miss that. All of their transgressions, all of their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote place, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall take off the linen garments that he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place and put on his garments and come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of, his, of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. And he who lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe the body, his body in water and afterwards he may come into the camp. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat of the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried out of the camp. Their sin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned with fire. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterward, he may come into the camp. Now, one, that's a mouthful of verses. But two, we see the detailed description of the day of atonement. Now, it might sound simplistic, but the point of this entire day is to make atonement for sin. You see, sin has corrupted everything. 
That even in the midst of this holy place, they're to make an offering for the holy place. They're to make an offering for the tent of meeting. That they're to purify these things through these ritual offerings. That God is recognizing as the people dwell here and bring their sins on a daily basis before the Lord, He wants them to see this place as a holy and righteous place. He wants them to see this as a place where their sins come to die upon this altar. He wants them to see that they enter in sinful, unclean creatures and they leave being purified and made righteous before the Lord. Now, as we look at this, we've got to define some, tone, some, some terms, right? We've heard lots of different words. I want to be very clear about some of the language we're using here. We see atonement mentioned in here a number of times. And you may be wondering, what is atonement, right? Maybe I've got some connotation to this. I want to make sure we're all on the same page here. Here's what atonement is. It's an act by which God and man are brought together in personal relationship. Atonement is an act by which God and man are brought together in personal relationship. This is God stepping into the gap that is sin, killing sin and death, and embracing us. Now we've got sin here as well, right? We need to define what sin is. We need to understand what this looks like. Sin is human strain or departing from the expressed will and desire of God. Sin is that you and I will veer away from what God expects us to do. That you and I will hear God's word and will go off and do something else. You see, what we recognize in this moment throughout the Day of Atonement is that we have sinned and we've moved away from God. That we have left His holy presence by our free choice. This Day of Atonement is God offering forgiveness to us and moving back towards us. Remember, God has not moved in this relationship. It is us that have strayed away. And God, just like we see in the New Testament where he chases the lost sheep, the lost coin, the prodigal son, he pursues us so that he may embrace us and provide forgiveness. Now that we've defined those terms, right, we hear what atonement is. Why is it important here? It's mentioned frequently here in this passage. In chapter 16, atonement is used 15 different times. 15 times we see the word atonement. I'm not a genius. I'm not what you would call uh, someone who's got a PhD, who's a biblical scholar. But I'm bright enough to recognize that if you repeat a word 15 times, it might be important. As we look at this section of Scripture, this chapter, we recognize that if you're repeating atonement 15 times, there's something there we need to embrace. What is he providing atonement for, right? What is he doing in this action? Well, he's providing atonement for Aaron and Aaron's family. He's providing atonement for the holy place. He's providing atonement for the altar. He's providing atonement for the tent of meeting. He's providing atonement for the people of Israel. Fifteen times he says, I will provide atonement for and list these things. Now, as we look at this, why is atonement so important for God's people? Why is this word, atonement, so important, so significant for us? It's a biblical word, yes, but what does it actually mean? Simply put, you and I sin. You and I act in a way that is contrary to God's will, and we stray away, we sin. And because of our sin, we make atonement necessary in order to be in God's presence. That we see through this book a focus on sacrificial atonement. You see, atonement as we use it carries two connotations. One of them means to wipe clean. One of them means to purify. The other means to pacify or to reconcile. And we see God use those words in multiple ways here. You see, when we use the atonement as one to make clean, that's when he's referring to the tent of meeting, to the altar, etc. When we see him refer to pacify or reconcile, that's when he's talking about people. We see that used when he talks about that scapegoat, where we see this, I told you not to miss this, where Aaron places his hands on the head of the scapegoat. And he places all the sins, all the trespasses, all the iniquities of the people on this goat. 
And then what does God say do? Take that thing out of the camp and let it die somewhere else. Take that sin, take that shame, take your transgressions. They are gone. As far as the east is from the west, your sin is gone. Yeah, that requires a few more shouts of hallelujah. That is the fundamental truth, the basis of the atoning work. That God has said, this is your sin, I will remove it. This is your sin, take it away. It is no longer here, it is no longer yours. You see, God has to reconcile us to him because our sin is an affront to a holy God. You see, as a holy God, he cannot be in the presence of sin. He cannot tolerate sin. He cannot embrace it in any way. And his sense of justice requires him to act. God has to do something about sin. There are no ifs, ands, or buts about it. He has to do something about sin. It's in his very nature to hate sin, to push sin away, to destroy it. He must do something about it. And because he's just, he has to punish it. He has to punish sin. You see, you and I would look at an earthly judge, and if this earthly judge let guilty people go free with no punishment, we would say, I'm not a scholar, but that guy's not a good judge. That's not a good judge. That's not what a judge does. They uphold the integrity of the law. They shouldn't just send guilty people away for free with no punishment. So God is required to move and to act on sin. He must punish sin. Yet, we see throughout the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, that God is going to have to let guilty people go free if he's to save sinners like you and I. That he's going to have to let guilty people go free if he's to save sinners like you and I. Perhaps you can feel the tension here, right? That God is required to punish sin, but he also must forgive that sin if we're to go free. How can his mercy and his justice be reconciled together? Through the atonement. You see, atonement for sin through sacrifice is the answer to these questions. You see, God expresses his justice against sin in the death of the sacrifice. Then he expresses his mercy to the sinner by allowing the sacrifice to take the sinner's place. Those are two weighty statements, and I want you to hear those again because I need you to understand this. This is the foundation for everything in the Christian life. God expresses his justice against sin and the death of the sacrifice. He then expresses his mercy to the sinner by allowing the sacrifice to take the sinner's place. If you've been around the church or read the Bible a time or two, you might be hearing some very familiar language that leads us in a straight line to Jesus, right? That this takes us directly to Christ. And one of the things, just as a helpful idea, as we're trying to understand and interpret Scripture, as you're reading the Old Testament, the best thing to do is to then take this passage you're reading in the Old Testament and go see what did the New Testament writers do with this passage, right? What did they think about these concepts? And we see in the book of Hebrews that the writer of Hebrews understood some very key truths to us in these, these sections of Scripture. You see, the writer of Hebrews understood that Jesus offered his own blood, securing an eternal redemption. Hebrews 9.12 says, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. No longer do we have to offer these things of bulls and goats and anything else because our God has made the eternal sacrifice by his blood. We see that the high priest has to enter into an earthly tent, but Jesus offers his sacrifice before God himself. In Hebrews 9, 24, he says, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. 
Our high priest is not a sinful man. Our high priest is not one who has to make sacrifices here on earth. Our high priest stands before God himself, offering himself on our behalf. The high priest offers sacrifices for his own sins here in Leviticus. Yet Jesus is the sinless, perfect high priest. Hebrews 7 tells us, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like these high priests, those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. We have a perfect, holy, righteous high priest who offered himself up for the sins of the world. You see, the high priest had to offer sacrifices repeatedly, throughout his life, throughout his ministry. Yet Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice once for all eternity. Hebrews 9, 25 and 26 tells us, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. You see, Jesus is God's offer of atonement and removal of sin. Jesus is God's offer of atonement and removal for sin. It's why we've sung these songs today of nothing but the blood, the solid rock. This is why we cry out hallelujah for the cross. Because it is by Jesus' sacrifice that we may have relationship with God. Throughout this passage, throughout the scriptures, we clearly see this idea of substitutionary atonement. That is, that Jesus died in our place on the cross taking our sin and shame by bearing God's wrath. We see that in the sacrificial system here, that a sacrifice must take our place so that we can receive mercy and forgiveness from God. Isaiah 53.10 tells us, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. And to put him to grief. From the beginning of the foundations of the earth, before time even began, God knew that his created people would stray away from his will and desires. Before the foundations of the earth were ever set, before Genesis 1-1 occurred, Jesus knew that he would have to go as a sinless Savior to pay for the debt of sin and shame upon the cross. And he looked at his father, and he did not waver. He did not wander away. What he said was, yes and amen, Lord. This is the way. This is the path to righteousness for our broken and lost people. We recognize in the substitutionary atonement that God is pouring out all of his wrath and hostility regarding sin and shame. He's pouring it out upon Jesus. That Jesus is a sacrifice that can bear the weight of this sin and shame. And God is taking his anger, his hatred, his wrath towards sin. And he is pouring it out upon Jesus upon the cross. Jesus knew he would suffer Yet he willingly bore it for us. Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5 read, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Don't miss that language. 
He says, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The very same words that Moses uses here to talk about Aaron laying the sins of the people upon the goat. Jesus was the scapegoat for you and I. He bore the weight of our sin and shame so that we might have life. He literally became 2 Corinthians 5.21 for you and I. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I want you to hear that again because this is the very heart of the atoning work. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That one verse shows us everything we need to understand about this substitutionary atonement, about God's atoning work, that he would send a perfect, sinless Savior to take the place of condemned criminals like you and I, that he would bear the weight of our sin and shame so that we could become what? The righteousness of God. Elsewhere in scriptures, it calls us co-heirs with Christ, adopted children of God. The very work of the atonement is intended so that you and I may find forgiveness for our sins and enter into the presence of God. Now, as if these, this beautiful truth of the atonement's not enough, we need to understand a, a truth about the atoning work of God. You see, God's atonement is forever. God's atonement is forever. Look with me at verse 29. And it shall be a statute to you forever, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all of your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in its father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary. He shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. He shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of their sins. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. I want you guys to see that, that we have three instances of this shall be a statute forever. What God is making clear here is that, yes, this day of atonement will come once a year, but you are going to celebrate this. You're going to rejoice in the atoning work forever. That this will go down throughout history, that there has been a way made for God and man to have relationship. See, the Old Testament did this, the Old Testament believers did this every year, but they did so in the hope of the true eternal sacrifice of Jesus. No, they did not know the name of Jesus, but they knew that he was coming. They knew that he would come and make the final payment for sin and shame for them. They knew that a day would come that they would no longer labor under the law, but they would be set free by the shed blood of Jesus. They rested in the glory of God that he would sustain them to that day. You see, even though they made repeated sacrifices each and every year, they rested in the comfort that God would provide a scapegoat for them. You and I, as believers on this side of Jesus, 2,000 years after his death, burial, and resurrection, we rest in that same comfort that God will sustain us, that he will provide a scapegoat for us, that he will make a way for us as sinful people to have a relationship with him. As we've done multiple times today, we're going to go to the book of Hebrews and just look at what the writer of Hebrews said. The writer of Hebrews understood this sacrificial system from Leviticus at a level that is so rich and deep that we have to read this. Hebrews 10.10 10 reads, And by that, 
we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies shall be made a footstool for his feet. Verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We labor under the promise that God is working and changing who we are. That we're sanctified. He is making us a holy dwelling place for his spirit. And in doing so, he is continually offering us forgiveness so that we may become a holy dwelling place for his spirit. And we know that he has forgiven us of our past sins so that we may become a holy dwelling place for his spirit. Because of what Christ has done, we can live confidently in the promises of God. We can be bold to serve and persevere in our walk with him because we know that he is continually working to sanctify us. We know that his sacrifice upon the cross was sufficient for all time. That there is no sin too great for the grace of God. And we can press forward knowing that we are held tightly by God. Now this is a beautiful truth. This is a captivating truth that for us as believers should lead us to rejoice and sing and cry out to God with hallelujah. This should lead us to stand and dance. I know we're Baptists, but to God be the glory. We should rejoice that he has made atonement for you and I. We should celebrate and sing loudly so that the world hears that there is redemption to be found through the nail-scarred hands of Jesus Christ. Now you and I as believers have this beautiful truth to rest in. And if you're here and you would perhaps say, I'm not a believer, or I hear these words and I'm not sure that that describes my experience as someone who walks with Christ. Well, today is perhaps today that you would experience the atoning work of Jesus. Perhaps you would fully wrestle with the truths that he has made a way for you to be forgiven of your sin and shame. That he has made a way for you to have a relationship with him. That he has taken your place upon the cross, died a death that you and I deserved, so that he could have us. That he endured the suffering of the cross for the joy that was set before him. The joy that was you and I coming into his arms and calling him Father. That this is the beauty of the atoning work. And today, as every other day throughout the history of the world, that atoning work is made available free of charge to those who would cry out to God for forgiveness. And so here in the next few moments, we'll continue to celebrate in that atoning work. That we will together sing songs rejoicing that it is Christ who has moved in our lives. That it is Christ we rejoice and celebrate in. That we will together sing of his goodness and grace. But first, we must meditate and wrestle with God. We must wrestle with what it is he is doing in our lives. Here in the next few moments, we're going to have a time of silent prayer. That is for you and I to go to God, God of the universe, by ourselves, silently. I'll finally stop talking, and you'll interact with the Lord of the universe, the sovereign king. And after a few moments, I'll pray for us. And we'll together stand as saints who have been redeemed by the shed blood of Jesus and rejoice in this good news of the gospel. In this time, as we are rejoicing and celebrating, if God's doing something in your life, would love to hear about it. Would love to celebrate with you. Perhaps this is the day that you've received that atoning work. Perhaps this is the day that you have said, this is real and true. Maybe you're simply saying, I've strayed away from this and I need a full measure of that atoning work for forgiveness and relationship. 
You can come speak to me during this time. If you're watching online, you can go to homesavenue.com forward slash contact and we'll be able to reach out to you from there. What I urge you to do today though is to recognize that God is offering this atoning work for all eternity, but is only sufficient for us while we live on this earth. We have a limited time offer because you and I will not live forever. So together, let us go to the Lord in prayer and silently ask him what it is you will have us do today. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we are grateful for you. We're thankful that you are a God who saw his people wandering astray. Before you even created your people, you knew we would wander from the fold. And you chose to make an atoning work. That before the foundations of the earth were even placed, you knew that a sacrifice would have to be made so that we could have a relationship with you. And Father, we are thankful for the eternal sacrifice that is Jesus Christ. We're thankful that you have made a way once and for all for your people to know you. We're grateful that you have taken condemned criminals who were in active rebellion against you and called us children and co-heirs with Christ. We are so thankful that you would choose to make a way for a sinful people to be made righteous. So Father, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would allow us to rejoice and to celebrate underneath the majesty of that truth, that you as a holy God would choose to come to a sinful people and make us holy. That's the beautiful message of the gospel. That is the message of the book of Leviticus, that you would call out to people and make them holy. Father, that's a truth that should just shake us to our core. That should make us wonder, what is it that you're doing in this world? It's a mind-blowing truth because the truth of it is that no other religion that we would see in the world has a God who comes in this way to pay for the sins of his people and call them his. Father, we are thankful that you are a God like no other. We are thankful that you are the one true God. And we are thankful for the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That you would make an atoning work for us so that we could call you Father. Lord, there are not words to do justice, the beauty of this truth. But over the next few minutes as we sing and celebrate this beautiful message of the gospel. May these words honor you. May they be the cry of our heart. May they be a fragrant sacrifice, a pleasing aroma before you, Lord, as we cry out the beauty of this gospel that you would come to seek and save the lost. Father, thank you for the atonement. Thank you for all that you do for us. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.